Welcome back to the Buddhist Millionaire Podcast. I'm Matt Jardine, your host and author of How to Be a Buddhist Millionaire, Nine Practical Steps to Being Happy in a Materialist World. Let's do some housekeeping first. You know what I'm like with the old housekeeping. This podcast is powered by coffee. Very little else, certainly not talent on my side anyway. So if you like what you hear, please go ahead and buy me and my guest a coffee at my Buy Me a Coffee page. The link is somewhere in the description. Look, actually, don't buy me a coffee straight away. It's Ramadan. So I'm no coffee, no sugar basically know nothing. All right. Uh, what's new this week? Two new countries joined our list of listeners. So thank you so much. You've taken us from 50 to 52. So we've got Cambodia and Croatia in the house. Hi, guys. Hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I do appreciate your time. Um, what else have I been up to? Well, apart from, uh, I'm going to be honest, I like to be as honest as I can on this podcast. The first time I started it, I didn't press record. So me and my guest have been speaking for five minutes, but we're right, we're, we're back on track. Anyway, what else have I been up to? I've just got back from the UK, actually, uh, from visiting my parents and friends in the UK. And it was the first time I traveled um, since COVID, which was really, was really quite weird. And I went on those, um, flew on Qatar Air and went on one of those planes. So 31J, my, my ticket. I walk through the cabin. Yes, so here it is. No, not there. Get to the end of the plane and thinking, well, obviously they found out who I am. They're going to put me in the, in the loo. They didn't. They sent me upstairs, not, not to first class or business class. Don't get carried away. Upstairs, but to the same floor again. I was literally, you know, those, I don't know what they're called, 7A, 1-2, massive. I was literally flying on a block of flats, but that was quite an experience. Um, amazing. So Qatar Air, thank you very much for looking after me. That was a lot of fun. And then the other travel experience, um, for the I have never, ever driven down, uh, never, ever got the train down from London to my parents. So I've <laughs> sheared off 20 years of my life in traffic. I don't know why. I got the uh, train from Paddington to Truro, GWR, got my photo with Paddington Bear on uh, Station One. What a treat. So shout out to GWR as well. Thank you very, very much for a great trip. All right. Speaking of the UK, here we go. This is it. My guest today, um, like me, is a Brit who's moved abroad. Actually, I don't, he's not a Brit now. I think he's American. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and on his, on his website is the most fantastic tagline, which I wish was mine. Here it is. The full stops, by the way, are important because they're placed really well. This is his tagline on his website. The guy next door, only better and British. <laughs> I love everything about that. I, I came across him when um, Renata, my agent, emailed to say that uh, How to Be a Buddhist Millionaire is going to be an audiobook, And it turns out that my guest is the one who has narrated it. So please welcome the very brilliant voiceover artist, Mr. Mike Cooper. Hi, Mike, again. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Oh, how are, this is this is uh, this is spontaneous. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Uh, all, all the you know, yeah, that's uh, I, I can actually count on one hand how many times I forgot to press record. So that's a good. Listen, thing. we've all done it, mate. <laughs> Have you done that? Because I've, I've seen your studio. You work from home, don't you? I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I said to you, it's much better to realise that you've forgotten to press record two or three minutes into the yeah, yeah, hour-long yeah. recording than to realise at the end, because we've all done that too. So, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's yeah. I tell you, that, that the trip to the UK th uh, threw me out a little bit. It kind of really, because it, it, it was an odd thing. It was the first time I had travelled, and I hadn't realised how much of a bubble I was living in at 
And, and the Middle East is like that as well. It's such a different culture that you can be in this odd bubble. And it sort of threw me. It was weird seeing friends and family. I, it's sort of like literally I'd lost two years somewhere. Like I'd been away, but hadn't been away. It was very, very bizarre. And I haven't, it's taken me about a week to recover and I'm not quite back, back on the horse yet. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? My last trip was to the UK and it was in October 2019. Right. Um, and I was going backwards and forwards about every six months, uh, partly for medical stuff and partly because myself and my partner both have clients in the UK. Yeah. So it was quite nice. We were enjoying it. But the amount of money we saved when we stopped doing it. Was yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, we can come, we can circle back to that because um, some of the stuff that we've set up here actually came about as a result of COVID. A, a lot of stuff came about as a result of COVID. It, it was not a, it was not a terrible thing overall. If we take the positives out of it, it started an audiobook career for me. Yeah, you said that before, before in our last go round that you actually you weren't you were your voiceover didn't include audiobooks and you pivoted on on COVID. Now, because that, that's interesting, because I've said this to Sherry, to my wife, that, you know, I think life is like a sandbox. Sometimes it's in one corner, sometimes it's in the other. And to kind of manage it, we do have to be prepared to move. And so many businesses and industries shut down um, through COVID that, you know, mm. you had to you have to shift and you clearly did. How did you find the kind of strength, courage, I guess, to do that? Well, I mean, one of the things you talk about in, in the book, which I love, by the way, um, was this idea that you, the answers are, are within you. And if you shut up and get out of the way long enough and, and listen to your intuition, it will come through you. So background a lot of voiceover artists don't get involved in doing audiobooks because it's a lot of work is it um, well yeah i mean I, I don't do fiction i only work on non-fiction because that's right. that's really where my passion is anyway okay. but especially if you're doing something like a fiction book there's a lot of prep involved you've got to read the book everybody who does audiobooks has a story about how they didn't read the book and then got to chapter 11 and found out the character that they've been voicing for the last 18 hours has a Scottish accent or something like that. <laughs> That's as bad as my not pressing record. <laughs> yeah. Only more so, right? Yeah. So, but, so there's a lot of prep involved in audiobooks. Uh, the hourly rates, because you usually with audiobooks, you get paid on what they call a per finished hour rate. So if the book is three hours long, you get paid for three finished hours, okay. but okay. however long it takes you to record it might yeah. take you six hours hours and nine hours or, or whatever yeah. so a lot of voiceover artists just don't touch audiobooks they're, they're like nope too much like hard work don't go and see someone else i'd been of that mindset until my trip back to the uk in october 2019 and i'd been reading a book written by a friend of mine called william whitecloud who teaches intuition and uh, takes people away to africa and and puts them in nature and oh wow and, and is, that, is that a friend. british British guy, British author. He's actually from uh, from Swaziland, or Iswatini, as we now call it. Um, he grew up on a sugar plantation there. His family had something like 400,000 acres, which Whoa. they eventually sold to the, the Swazi government to turn into a nature reserve. Right. So now when William takes these trainings, he takes groups of people back to that safari landscape. He calls oh. it his soul safari. Um, soul and, safari. And, uh, yeah. Oh, so my husband and I had done some of these trainings with him. My, my husband, Mark, was was in business with him as a partner for a while. And we've remained friends. And I was reading his book. He, he finally condensed all of the stuff that he'd done over the last 30 years and put it into like a manual, uh, which he called um, Secrets of Natural Success. Oh. And I was reading this book on my trip to the UK and I was finishing up on the plane on the way home. And I just had this little light bulb moment of, you know, I don't do audio books, but if I did, 
I'd love to narrate this audio. Right, right, right. And yeah. the plane, you know, we live in, we live in the twenty first century, so you know, the plane had in flight messaging. So tapped him out a lot message and said, um, "I'm sure you must have a narrator, but if you don't, I'd love to do this." And he said, "No, I don't, but actually, you're the perfect choice. Wow. Let's get going." Wow. So I ended up doing this audio book for him out of the blue. Got to the end of it, learned a lot, learned a lot of things I wouldn't do the next time around, and then kind of put it to one side and thought, "Well, that was very interesting. It's quite a lot of work, though. But you know, if at some point in the future I need something, we'll put a pin in this." Mm-hmm. And then COVID happened, and when COVID happened, for me, I found that a, a lot of the commercial work and the corporate work and my day-to-day voiceover work just dried up. Because all the budgets just sort of went, Choo! no, oh, everyone just stopped doing make- anything, didn't they? Everybody stopped making content. People stopped yeah. advertising. Nobody was really sure what was going to happen next. Um, so it, it got very quiet there for a little while. And I thought, well, I, I put a pin in that audiobook thing. Why don't we just pull on that and see what happens? And it took off. So it was a great example of tuning into your intuition in the first place and then following it through and taking the obvious steps. And this is the stuff that William teaches in the book. It's the stuff that, that my partner Mark teaches with his clients. Um, what is it? That, that sounds, that's your husband, right? What, my what husband, does, Mark. Yeah. Mark what with does a C, he do yeah, then? Mark what? is an intuitive coach. Um, huh. Really. I mean, that sells him short. What Mark really is, is he's a human behavior expert. Right. And like sort of I, I, not, not just so I understand. Darren Brownish, that kind of predicted, or, or I know that I know that's very kind almost, of yeah. Agey, but yeah. that's sort of so Mark's Mark's everyday superpower, if you want to call it that, is that he can see he can see the structure and the patterns in human behaviour, wow. and they're really obvious to him in a way that they're not obvious to most people. So you sit down and you spend twenty minutes talking with him, and by the end of it, he can say, well. I can see what your pattern is here. You do this and then you do this and then this happens. And here's how you react. And oh. and this, it's all structural. That is really, um, really interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. Huh. Um, so, so this was a pivot for me. This was my, the audiobooks were a COVID pivot, but as we were talking about before, it wasn't the first time I pivoted. I pivoted a few times over the years. I think yeah, this was number, number six in terms of I've changing. I've got here on your, on your kind of, um, so you, Proudest career achievements include 10 years of newsreader for BBC World. So you've done, I mean, you've done tons of stuff. You've I've done a lot doing- of stuff, yeah. But the thing is, I've always, I was, I guess I was a fortunate child, Matt, because unlike most kids who haven't got a clue what they want to do, or they've got some idea of, you know, I want to be an astronaut or whatever. Yeah. I always was fascinated by the voices that I heard coming out of the radio and the TV when I was really. Like, yeah. It was there. That, um, were you at your grandparents or your mum and dad's with the, you know, the radio on the back constantly playing? My, my childhood was that. Yeah. I, and I, I was always fascinated by the voices I heard, but it was always the voices I heard between things. Right. So in, in the UK, um, it won't mean so much to people from, from outside the UK. But if I say to you the continuity announcers, the people on the TV between the programmes yeah. telling you what's coming up next yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, whatever... Yeah. I loved the sound of those voices, and I, I just kind of knew that I wanted to do something like that when I grew up. I didn't come from a family that had any background in that. Um, my parents were doing their due diligence and saying, well, that's all very well, Michael, but we don't know how that works, so you're going to have to get good grades in school. A normal and- job, as it were. But I never let go of it. It was always my passion. So as soon as I was old enough to start doing work experience placements and things, I started going off to radio stations and um, you know, my parents were a little sceptical, but that finally led to to my first job in radio straight out of school. Wow. Uh, I went off to work for the BBC at Pebble Mill, which was... Which Pebble was just, Mill? Yeah. No. So I'd grown up watching this 
the BBC has has a number of kind of iconic buildings like that's TV White City. Is Pebble Mill's White City, isn't it? No, Pebble, Pebble Mill was the Birmingham base. Oh, the Birmingham one. Birmingham, they used yeah. to do all the lunchtime shows and yeah, the, yeah, the late yeah, yeah. music shows and stuff. Um, but it was it was a place that you know I grew up to, seeing it on my TV screen every day, and it was the first place I worked out of school, and I it just it hooked me. And from there, I just I, every time I decided that I wanted to do something slightly different. So I, st- I started in radio. And I decided I wanted to present radio programs. Then I decided I wanted to be a TV announcer. So I did that. Then I decided that the people pushing the buttons on the other side of the glass looked like they were having a really good time. Good so time. I, did that for a while. <laughs> I want a bit of what um, they're doing. <laughs> I got into TV news directing. I directed TV news for ITN and then the BBC and then Sky. Wow. And then somebody nudged me off towards the World Service, and I'd spent ten very enjoyable years being a being a newsreader for the BBC World Service, and and somewhere in the middle of all that, around two thousand and seven, another intuitive hit. Um, my my ex partner and I in London had uh, had one of those like masonettes, like an upper a raised ground floor yeah. and a lower ground floor, and in the lower ground floor there was a walk in closet wardrobe, and I walked in there one day. And I thought, oh, it sounds really good in here. It's really dead in here. This would make a great voiceover booth. Yes, I wonder if you can do voiceovers from a home studio. This was 2007. Yeah. And it was just at that point where people were starting to get that kind of thing off the ground. And That's it turns out I could do voiceovers from home. And within a month or two, I was working pretty much full time as a voiceover working from my home studio. Wow. So each of those things has been like an intuitive hit or a, an I'd like to do that what do I need to make that happen? And and just taking the obvious steps towards it. A lot of the stuff that you talk about in the book about finding your passion, which is why it resonated for me. That's really interesting. I want to get back onto intuition in a second, but I am um, talking about how kind of the, how industries have changed. Right. So I, I've, I have a friend here um, who you've been around radio, Robin Banks. He runs Amarn FM. He was used to be Christopher Banks, who was in Virgin, one of the, one of those guys. Anyway, I went around to his house. Uh, through covid and he on times where he's not they have a studio in one of the malls right a normal kind of radio jackie studio whatever Mm -hmm. but he has times when he's not there which is essentially the top of his attic which is no bigger than a closet and runs it from there and he's shown me how they make the um you know the ads and all the all the stings and all that sort of stuff on on a macbook pro so or you know other computers are available but you know on that sort of <laughs> and it's absolutely incredible i remember you talk about the continuity guys i remember the first time i realized that was a real job um now i think it was channel four they did a bit where they for a time showed the people doing the talk and i, I was remember like that. yeah remember that and uh, i was like that's a real job and i remember it being wow what an incredible thing to do because you, you sort of either don't think about it or you think well that's got to be pre-recorded and or, or whatever it may be and then you think that's actually someone that, that's their job so uh yeah no it's, it's fascinating absolutely fascinating yeah yeah and it is incredible what you can do now um just in a computer in software that 30 years ago when i started you had to have physical mixing desks um physical tape cartridges and reels of tape and records cds and things still splicing audio tape and visuals and all sorts of stuff literally with a with a uh, i remember doing it at school you know cutting it with the razor blade and then sticking it back together all that sort of stuff amazing it is incredible where we've where we're at now and what we can do and it's it's meant that you can be i love the term digital nomad which is what I consider myself. I mean, that's perfect. Buddhist millionaireship, isn't it? Digital nomad. You can you can go anywhere, do what you want. That's fantastic. And that was the point. So when um, so so 
Mark and I met 12 years ago in America. We dated long distance for a few months, and then he came to London for, for four months for the summer. Obvi you know, next obvious action, intuition. We want to see if this can work. What can we do? Well, we need to spend more time together. So he came over to London for the summer, and somewhere in the middle of all that, we realized that we were going to run out of time because if he left the country, he wasn't going to be allowed back in for a year because he right. was just on, on a holiday visa. Yep. Um, so we, he got his intuitive hit was, well, what can we do to, to make it possible for me to stay here in the UK? And we were talking to an immigration lawyer who'd given us various options and none of them were really looking great because there were things like, well, you could do a student visa or you could do a, a work visa. Or, and, and the thing was, all of those things were going to mean that it was going to take him at least a year, maybe two years before he could do things like get health cover through mm. the NHS. Yeah. And then he was digging in the garden one day again, Digging in the garden, you're not thinking about the problem so much, but the answers permeate yes, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, "Well, if we were married, I he would probably just be able to bring me in as a spouse, right? I wonder if the UK recognises same-sex marriages, because in the at that point in America they weren't recognised at a federal level. Some of the states right. have." Okay. had same-sex marriages. And in fact, the state where he grew up, Massachusetts, was one of the first. So he said to our immigration lawyer, what would happen if we were to just nip back to Massachusetts and get married? Yeah. And he said, I'm really not sure. Nobody's really done that before, but let me check into it. And it turned out that that was the way of doing it. So we yeah. came back, had a little marriage ceremony with, with his family, which was very sweet, very small. Two weeks later, he's got a visa. He comes into the UK. Uh, settles with me as my partner and away we go we spent four and a half years in london and then where were you in london in we the were in, yeah kind of we were we were just um just south london so walworth kennington okay. that kind of area we were sort uh, of putney roehampton wimbledon we were around we there. Were in a nice bit yeah we were on a council estate in walworth <laughs> no i grew um, don't worry I, I didn't say i grew up there i ended up there <laughs> renting but yeah, yeah same sort of thing <laughs> So I used to look out. Uh, this is one of the things that it, it amazes me now because I used to look out, you know, across our, our little postage stamp of front yard, across uh, the wheelie bins and then the council blocks on the other side. Now I look out at mountains and trees and your it's like, a, you, know, you know, you get those ads come up. I don't know, ads or whatever, right? And um, and for you guys who listen, I'll put Mike's Instagram in there. I'll check with him. It's okay. But I'm, you've got to check out some of his photos. Brilliant. But you know, you get those things that come up like there's my little house or my ideal log cabin. You know, you get those and you follow it. Or my cat does 10 things and you follow those sort of things. Anyway, yours is one of those I follow as the ideal log cabin, <laughs> horse, goat, dogs, cats, house. It, Unbelievable. You know, my life looks nothing like I expected it to. <laughs> but I think that's a really good point. It doesn't have to. And sometimes all of what we have here, I, I thought when we came to live in America, um, so just to wrap that up, we, we always said that when the opportunity came, if and when the American federal government did recognize our little Massachusetts marriage, yeah. that we would do this the other way around. Because by this point, Mark had got British citizenship. Yeah. And we said, well, it would only be fair to do it the other way around. And I always thought I would end up living in America from the first time I set foot here. So we decided we would come out and, and check out 
where we live now and we ended up coming here in november 2014 and now as you said earlier now i'm now i'm american and british and he's british and american um so it worked out very well but but the way my life looks is nothing like i expected i always thought that if we came to live in america we'd probably end up in a city maybe in the suburbs but probably a city um and Mark's vision really was, no, I want to live somewhere where we, we've got space and we don't have neighbours on top of us and we can have some animals. And for a while I resisted it because it felt very alien to, to anything that I'd got planned. It's very and town mouse, country mouse, isn't it? It's a very it different is. thing. Yeah. It is. And the thing was, as soon as it started to take shape, I realised I really liked it. Mm. Uh, it, it's wonderful having space and being out in the country. My only stipulation was when we lived in London, we were we were about 30 minutes from the West End. Okay. That's how long it took to get out of the house, walk to the tube, get down into the tube, get yeah. on the tube, get up the other end and get to where you're going. It was about 30 minutes door to door. So I said, look, have at it. But I, but I don't want to be any more than 30 minutes from, from downtown Asheville, North Carolina, which is where we are. Um, so we ended up about 25 minutes from downtown, but we're almost all the way up a mountain valley at the bottom of a mountain. Um, Blue Ridge Mountains, aren't you? We're in the Blue Ridge Mountains, yeah. Um, so we're tucked up in the, like the bottom left-hand corner of North Carolina. We can be, we could be in Georgia, Tennessee, uh, within about an hour from here. Um, and the mountains, are it's, it's nice. I live half a mile up. And it's it's beautiful. It's, I love I, I love I've spent some beautiful times in the Carolinas, both north and south, because I was a tennis player over there. So I was up and down that east coast playing tennis in my kind of formative years. And I absolutely love the fa- my favorite part of America, are both Carolinas. I know they're very different, but I I, I love them. Um, because I lived for a while in New York in the Catskills. Mm. I know I know the different things, but any of those mountains up that east coast are gorgeous, and North Carolina and the Blue Ridge Mountains, stunning. Yeah, it is. It is, and it never gets boring. Sit- Sorry, mate, go on. I, I was just saying, it never gets boring. I mean, we have a picture window that looks out the front of the house, and every time you look at that mountain, it's doing something different. Whether it's clouds or the way the lights hitting it, or the way the vegetation and the trees change over the year. Um, it's, it's still seven years in has the power to take my breath away. And I love where I live. And that all fits into, uh, was it William, William Whitecloud's idea of kind of being in tune. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Let me ask you about this. A few things that have, have come up off the cuff. Of course I have, I have things I want to ask you, but, um, some things you've mentioned, you never imagined your life looking like this, right? No. So here's the thing. And I, I think. I, I certainly struggle with this, and I think that uh, our listeners sorry, will struggle. Sorry, Siri interrupted me. Do you want to? Do you want to take your question again? Siri can answer for us. Yeah, Siri, Siri please answer this. So, so I will struggle with this, and I know that um, listeners will struggle with this. This idea of, and I call it holding the world up with your fingertips. I have a te- my weakness. I have a tendency to over control the world. Right. So I think you should think it and imagine it into being certainly you know if you could I, I genuinely believe that if it's there in your head and you put it out there life starts moving towards you i do believe that but and this is this is where uh, your point here i think there's a degree of just going i have no idea how this is going to look almost surrendering just going i have no goals i have no plans now sometimes that can freak you out a bit because it can feel like well, i'm not i'm not doing anything should i be should i be you know, creating my own fate, or sometimes can we just surrender? You got any thoughts on that kind of balancing act between both planning and just letting it happen? 
I think both are important. And there are elements of my life that I have wanted to plan. It's one of those things that where I've decided I wanted to go for something or do something or change career or whatever, that's great. But one of the things that I've become aware that I do, and it sounds like you may have a little of this as well, um, because Mark pointed it out to me, because it's part of the structure of of the way we run our, our limiting beliefs and our, our programs or whatever. I have a tendency that if I feel like I like I lose control in one area of my life, I have a, a tendency to overcompensate and try and control yeah, all the other things. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's just shifting it from from one thing to another. It's mm-hmm. it's a lack of control. Um, but it's yeah. But uh, when we moved here, as I say, this this didn't look anything like I expected. Oh, we're going to go and look at a log cabin. That's different. Didn't expect to be living in a log cabin. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but as it's taken shape, I've just found myself able to to let go and go with the flow a little more. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, first yeah. of all, it was a couple of goats. It was like, well, goats seem a little odd, but they turned out to be a complete joy. Yeah, they had the baby yeah. goats. You'll, you'll see them on the Instagram, but we had these baby goats that we were bottle feeding every four hours for 12 weeks. Wow. Uh, we'd take them out with us to places because they had to be fed every four hours. Um, and that was kind of fun. So that kind of set me up then for the next thing and the next thing. And then we got to, again, we got to COVID and about, Two, maybe three years ago now, um, Mark had a heart attack about three and a half years ago. Oh, nothing, nice. I say nothing serious. I mean, it's a heart attack, but yeah, it's, it's hard, it it's wasn't hard. one of those, it wasn't wasn't one of those, you're really out of shape, you need to change your diet kind of things. He'd had a, a blood condition that meant his blood was very thick. Right, okay. And he had a blood clot that detached and went off and lodged in the back of his heart. Right, right, right. So although it was very serious, he got through it pretty quickly yeah. and, and regained health very quickly. But one of the things was he started looking at his bucket list. And one of the things on his bucket list was, I want to ride a horse full gallop on a beach. Before That's I the Sherry's, Sherry's the same. Sherry's the same. <laughs> yeah. But of course, he'd never ridden a horse. That's so right. there were going to have to be some, some riding lessons or, yeah. or whatever in there. So again, intuition, then obvious actions. He, he found a, a, local, uh, a local stables that was that was doing riding lessons and went off and started taking riding lessons. And it was like something got unlocked in him wow. that I'd not seen before. Really? And it really became obvious to me very quickly that this was this was one of the missing pieces for him. And so it became clear. He said, he started saying to me things like, you know that we're going to want horses here, right? And again, it was <laughs> and I know the outcome. I followed your Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but horses, that's a lot. They're big animals. That's a different cost. Expensive and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it became clear. It, I wasn't going to fight the tide on this. Um, but when it happened, again, it, we kind of got to COVID and we had that reckoning that so many people did. And we saved a fortune by not traveling during COVID. Yeah. Because we were going back to London a couple of times a year, and then we were doing social travel and stuff on top of that. And when we stopped, we suddenly noticed that money was starting to accumulate in the bank. You realize how little you need to spend in a day, actually, don't yeah. you? I also realized how little I need to travel. And although it's nice to be out in the world, I realized I don't need it need as much. Be. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it became clear that horses were coming at some point. And I said, look, if you want horses, fine go for it but we're not going to to jerry rig it and make do and mend like we've done a little bit with with goats and chickens i said this this will not be a t-bar fence arrangement this is going to be proper fences we're going to do this proper stable (laughs) so that was that was another thing that we did during covid we we took the money that we weren't spending 
And we hadn't really touched the property in terms of doing anything infrastructure-wise or anything since we moved in, because we moved into this pristine property that it kind of felt like it wasn't really ours for the first right, five right, years. Made, yeah. Anyway, we got to year six and COVID and horses, and we're like, okay, it's time. So we put in we put in fences, we put in stables, and made ourselves ready for horses, and and that was that was our little COVID project. It's so interesting. We live here um, by so on this side mountains, the Hajar Mountains. On you just go up the road and you've got dunes. Less now in Muscat, of course. Like all things, not as natural as it was. So there's less. You go an hour out and there's dunes everywhere. And then the sea. That's a beautiful thing with Muscat. Nice. But my point there is that being around kind of nature and natural things as you are, it does something to the soul, doesn't it? And, and, and for all the brilliant things that, you know, we, we can do our work now around the world because of the wonders of kind of modernity, right? Technology, all that stuff on one side. But on the other, it takes us further, unless we make the effort, it takes us further and further away from nature. And I think that's what some people struggle with. And I think it is really helpful to push ourselves back towards something natural and kind of untouched and un with no technology, it's like a horse or a mountain. Yeah, I could, you know? couldn't agree with you. And I, th I think it's, you know, they say that mental health uh, is kind of on the slide. We, we've known that for quite some time. And I do think it's the lack of touch with stuff. I'm a bit of a birder. I have a bit of a bit of a twitcher. I'm not a, I'm a there's Simon Barnes book called How to Be a, a Bad Bird Watcher. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not like a geek, but I love birds because and I read once about the psychology of bird watching for a lot of people. It's because there's something that is still so free that we can relate and recognize that and i do think it's essential that people at some point kind of touch that that's why you know williams works i'm gonna gonna get your audiobook but that sounds absolutely fascinating it's it's really essential isn't it, to get back to the basics it is i mean that's that's something that that william and and mark my partner both both teach and in fact for me it came out of working with um with Mark and with somebody else back in around 2012, we were doing a, a training course again on, on listening to your intuition and following through. Mm -hmm. And the thing that came out of it was I want to live in nature. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's fairly abstract, but it's, it's a, yeah, I really want to live in nature. And we were living in the middle of London at this point. So we started looking all around the South coast. We worked our way all along the South coast from Essex to, to Devon. And yeah. by the way, yeah, that train ride, you know it, I do. Yeah. Cause you come cruising out of Marylebone or Paddington or wherever it is for the first like two hours at full speed. Yeah. And then as soon as you hit Devon, you slow to a crawl. Well, it does that. that you're crawl, literally on the beach. Around the coast. That beautiful yeah. kind of beach. It's amazing. Ride. I did yeah. this thing, which is, um, I kind of don't want to tell people, but it's so good. Seat Frog, right? A friend of mine told me, I don't know if you know about it. And it's an app, right? Which um, basically you can bid for first class. Oh, right. right. So you get, the, you get this app so you can bid. Long and short story is um, I got first class for, I mean, you pay your normal standard ticket, whatever it is, 58 quid, and uh, first class for an extra 15. It was absolutely perfect. I wrote three chapters while I was there, <laughs> comfortable. I, I don't know why I had never been down to my parents in Cornwall. <laughs> On the track, I'd already done that horrific Enjoy. drive. As long as you've got the time to do it, it's great. Because it, it ends up being like a five or six hour journey, I think. And yeah. and half of that is just a little bit through, through yeah. Devon and Cornwall. Yeah, no, exactly. No, it's, oh, it, you've done it's that a great well. journey. So and anyway, course, we start, we started looking at the, at the how do we how do we get into nature? How do we get out of London? And we yeah. were we were all set to buy a house in Torquay. Um, up on a mountain, had a nice little walk through the woods down to not a private beach, but like a locals' beach. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and it was great. And then the deal fell through. And we were really down because it had taken us two years to get to this point. And it fell through. And we went off to do one of William's trainings in Africa together. We were going away for almost a month. Um, we came back and ran into our immigration lawyer and he said, yeah, everything's changed. You can now petition the US government to get a green card for Mike. Um, and so we started on the process of moving here. But it was one of those things that when the house fell through, it felt like the, like the sky had fallen in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why is the universe? Do- we just spent two years working on our intuition and getting this, to the point where we've got this bloody house. And That's a really through. interesting point now. But it freed us up for the big yeah. move, which was to move here. Because if we'd bought that house in Torquay, you know how it works. You spend a load of money moving, and then it's going to take you four or five years probably before you can do anything else again. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, would have locked yeah. ourselves into that, and we would have denied ourselves without even knowing the life that we now have here. So sometimes when those obstacles come up, you've got to be able to see past it yeah. and keep your, keep your focus on, because the thing, my end result, Mark talks a lot about end results. William talks a lot about end results. It's like, well, what's the thing you're aiming for? doesn't matter what's on the way. You're going you're gonna to zigzag and you're going to go all over the place to get there. Yeah. But Mark always says, if you know what your end result is and you keep it in mind and you keep moving towards it, you're either going to get there or you're going to die first think of the end achieved absolutely right that's an interesting point which brings us back actually to what i mentioned earlier about controlling and letting go because mm. even when you're working amongst the fear uh, you know the fields the intuitive fields like intuition etc and then a, a gift comes right something comes out of the blue oh we saw the ideal house in torquay you can then go that's the end game and then switch into dog-mindedness to get that done. Do you know what I mean? Rather than actually keeping the end game is actually I just want to live in nature or whatever. Exactly. The end the end game, the end result was never to live in Torquay. No, the it was to live in nature. Was always to live in nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and I, I find put- that because then you can feel that the things that go wrong feels like, oh, suddenly I've been abandoned, right? This, this great universe that was looking after me is now just decided to give me a slap up the head. And that can be a real problem. You can almost throw yourself off course rather than just it's kind of... Perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all perspective and the way you choose to look at it. And if you look at the bigger picture, there's there's often stuff in there, or there's stuff that's on the way to you that hasn't arrived yet. You can't see that. As long as you can stay in, um, there's another saying that comes with all of this, which is, you know, if you can be in the not knowing, if you can have, if you can adopt the mantra of "I don't know" I don't and know. "I don't need to know," yeah, 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 and just remain open to what's coming then some, that's where the gold is. There's so much gold in my life that I never saw coming, yeah. but it only happened because I was able to not resist it. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a, that is such an important lesson for anyone who, for, for not anyone talking like we've got it mastered, not at all, but for us all who want to kind of do what we're doing, there is that just try. Here's the thing. Though. Can I ask you this? That intuition, is mm. it, what is it? Is it a God thing? Is it a nature thing? Are you a religious guy? What is it? For you, what is it? Well, I could give you the answer, couldn't I? And just say, I don't <laughs> just know. That, that, I don't that's the end of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know and I don't need to know. No. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, it, you can get very woo-woo about it and talk about the idea that, you know, the universe is whatever the universe is and all things are coming to us and uh, and I don't know. I I used to buy into that a lot more than I do. I think there's a mixture of things. I think we probably do live in a benevolent universe that wants to deliver good things to you if you're in tune with it. 
but there's also a lot of of daily crap and shit that can get in the way of that happening. So yeah, um, I think it's about and and Mark would probably say the same thing, but you should ask him. Uh, it's about clearing your mind and allowing the stillness so that so that your ego gets out of the way because yeah. your yeah. ego is always working to keep you safe. Yeah. Your ego is always looking at separation. Your ego is always looking at why what what's out there that could hurt you because you're separate from it. Yeah. And if you can turn down the ego, um, I, I know that you meditate and that's one of the, one of the things with meditation is that you, hopefully you, you get to that point where the chatter of the ego, because it's the ego that you're hearing. That's the voice of the narrator that's running in your head all the yeah. time. Right. Um, if you can get to the point where it quietens down enough so that the other stuff starts to bubble up. Mm. I think that's yeah. the, that's your intuition. I, it's what I, happens. I guess, I guess my best answer is probably your intuition is, is what you hear when you're not hearing the other voices in your head. Yeah. 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 Intuition generally, I think for when it's happened for me, I think kind of is more, more body, more centralized in the gut. Yeah, you feel it, don't you? Yeah, you feel it. Whereas the other one is always a kind of a bit hard. I feel it in my neck and my shoulders. And whereas the other one is just a, almost like a certainty. It, it, it is done. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I think it comes right. on different levels as well. I think there, there are some things. I mean, I think we, most people have probably had a point or two in their lives where they've been in the middle of doing something and, and suddenly it's become obvious I have to do this or, or whatever. Oh God, it's just become really clear. I, I have to do that thing or I need to go there or I need to talk to this person. And you don't know why, but it's a strong, it's a feeling in your body, right? Yes, that yeah. you, you It's an actual thing, good. isn't it? Like tangible thing. Yeah. A lot of the time your intuition is quieter than that. And it takes a little bit more patience and quietude, if you like to, to hear what it's saying. Yeah. Cause sometimes it's, it's not a blinding flash of something. It's a thread of something. Like the I like that. I like that's. I really like that. It's not a blinding flash. It's a thread. I love that. I, that's absolutely right. Yeah, because because you're often waiting for the kind of epiphanatic smack up the chops, and you're right, Mike. It's just that it can be a thread that leads. Okay, we'll get the chickens and the goats, then the horse on the beach. Yeah. yeah it's so not, for me, I, I always talk about the audiobooks as that's being lovely. the thread mm. that I came back and pulled on. Because that's it was lovely. something that at the time it was like, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet. But we'll just put that to one side. And then when when the work started to slow down during COVID, I was like, let's just pull on that thread. Mm. Oh, now I'm pulling that thread. All of this other stuff starting to come with it, uh, and and it took off from there. And I'm, I love it now because I have, I, as I say, I, I narrate almost exclusively nonfiction, which means I get to read. I get paid to read all the kinds of books that I would read if I had the time, mm. but I get that's paid amazing. to do it. And then books like yours come along that I really, I really like the spirit and the message that goes behind them. And they're, they're just a joy to narrate. Thank you very much. I mean, I was, I'm so, I mean, you're talking about threads. That's one of the reasons I love doing the podcast. The podcast only came as you, obviously you can work it out. You've read the book. We had 11, 11 guests, I think on there I interviewed. And then the podcast is just an extension. There's no other purpose for this podcast other than I love speaking to other people who are living the life of the <laughs> Love. it's a completely selfish thing and the fact that so many people are now enjoying it i'm kind of i'm very grateful for but that's essentially it because you realize actually 
one thing leads to another and then you meet all these fantastic people who just you say and, and the threads come together and then now you suddenly you meet someone who's living in the blue ridge mountains and yeah i love it but of course none of that can be planned it just comes out of it just does what it does the book came out and then i was like covid should we do a podcast yeah and then it just takes on its own life doesn't it i see yeah. i know exactly I to people, if you told me 10 years ago when i was living so we lived in we lived in a little terraced ex-local authority house on a council estate in Walworth. And we thought we were doing well. Yeah. You know, we had a house. We yeah. owned a house in London, and that, that felt big. But, you know, it was 15 feet from one wall to the other, and there were houses either side. We had 950 square feet. And when I tell Americans this, they, they, they look bewildered because I say, and it had four bedrooms. <laughs> Because in the UK, you'll know it was that like our the, house. The single bedroom is a thing. A single bedroom, for anybody that doesn't know, is a bedroom that's literally big enough to put a single bed, bed in. Yes. in there and be able to close the door behind you. Yeah. And so we had two of those and then two slightly more generous rooms that they, that they called doubles. But the thing was, again, it was when I bought that house, I bought it in 2010. The market was depressed after the crash. Um, when we came to sell it four and a half years later, we not far off doubled our money. Amazing. And when, when I bought it, I was I was in tears the first night, and and I really felt like I'd taken on this thing that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to service the mortgage. Uh, I wasn't sure if I'd made a huge mistake because you know what it's like when you walk into a house that you've just bought and you see it devoid of all the furniture yeah, and yeah, you see yeah, the yeah. stains and the bits coming out of the walls and stuff. Yeah. Uh, what have I done? And Mark said, don't worry, you've done exactly the right thing. And when we come to sell this place, this place is going to set us up for the life that we want next. And he was yeah. absolutely right yeah. because when we sold it, the exchange rate was so favorable by that point that when we sold it, it was worth a million US dollars. Whoa. This this little tiny ex-local yeah, authority nice. house. Yeah. Which meant that when we came here, we we had the freedom to say, well, we, we'd like to keep some money to one side, but we're going to we're going to buy the house or the property that that we want to have and and set ourselves up. Yeah. So it, it real really all worked out very well. But it only worked out because we kept looking at what we wanted as our end result. And when we came here, we we said, well, what what kind of life do we want to create? And we agreed that we wanted to create a life that felt like being on vacation. Mm. Nice. And it does. That's what, that's what Sherry and I were like. We were just like, well, should, well, should we go and play somewhere? Yeah. And then every two years, we'll just see, do we want to carry on playing? So, for example, we're about to move very much like you. And the moment we're in Muscat, which is, you know, as much as a city as you can get in, uh, in, Middle in Oman, and we're going to Sawake. She's going to develop her own school. The point is, it's very much town mouse, country mouse. And I agree. It's just that keep your eye on the vision. And also, I think it's... I think people should feel okay with being happy reinventing themselves as many mm. times as you like. I mean, you're, you're, you've reinvented yourself a, a gazillion times. And I think a lot of people get stuck in one thing rather than just going, no, I actually, I don't want to do that now. I mean, I remember, I remember I've, I've made my parents panic every time over the years I've changed. I've oh, got, me you know, too. At each career I've, I've got to an okay level and then panicked when I've, I've suddenly said, no, I'm not doing that. Now I'm doing this. And you, you know, you know that look on your mum's face when it's like, absolutely. But it's also a generational thing, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember it became clear to me, it was probably about 15, 20 years ago where I was unhappy at work and it was obvious that I was unhappy. And uh, I remember my father saying to me, what are you unhappy about? I said, well, I'm not happy with, I'm not happy at work. This is going on and this is going on. And he said to me, that's the thing with your generation. You expect to enjoy your work 
work's not something that you that you're supposed to enjoy. It's just something that you do. That was that view. That really was that, that view. Was, was that was the view? Of, well, how old are you, Mike? Are we are we the same? What I'm, 50, I I'm actually turn, I turned fifty a week last Monday. Okay, happy birthday! But we Thank so we're exactly the same. Our parents yeah. are the same, essentially. Yeah, They're that kind of ideal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because it was one of those times where I, I was at that age, I think, where I, I was beginning to realise that my parents didn't didn't necessarily have the answers. They just had some answers that, yeah. that had worked for them. Yeah. And it became very clear to me that my ethos on what I thought about the world of work and where I fitted into it was very, very different from theirs. But I've always, I've always wanted to do work that I enjoyed. And if when it's got to the point where I've stopped enjoying it or it's become boring or you know um working in tv news was not a pleasant environment really once i felt like i ticked the box yeah and and proved that i could do it to myself i was really ready to get out and do something different right 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 yeah and i don't have any qualms about the idea of saying well this isn't working for me anymore or i i still enjoy this but i need more um, so I still do all of the voiceover stuff that I did before, but now I've added on the audiobook element of it. And it, it's nice because it, it's, 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 whereas the line of what I was earning was going up and down wildly for yeah. a while yeah. with the audiobooks. Now I've usually awesome. got a book to record and it's helped to make that through line yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot smoother. Are you, are you um, just at Blackstone or are you, are you elsewhere? No, I do. I work for, I'm, I'm, I'm open for hire. Come and find me. <laughs> But I do a lot of work for a company called Tantor Audio. Um, they're a part of Recorded Books, which is like the largest audiobook publisher in the world. They, they have hundreds and hundreds of titles. Uh, so they've usually got work for me. Uh, I'm a bit of a niche quantity because I'm a Brit living in America, working for American publishers, but who only really narrates nonfiction. So I'm, I'm in a real niche, but I've worked to try and make that my niche. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm not interested in going outside of that niche. I would rather, like I've done with my other voiceover work here in the States, I would rather be known for doing that thing than, than trying to do all the other things. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of work for Tanta. I do a smaller amount of work for Blackstone, who published your book, yeah. um, for a, another company called Dreamscape. Uh, and then the rest of it is whatever comes along. Whatever comes. Work for hire, yeah. yeah. And you've got, I, I like that to your work because it's got, um, it's obviously got that kind of iconic voice, but it's got humour in it as well. I like the way you punctuate with humour, which I, I guess is a skill, but that's, I well, imagine that's, a, that's a calling <laughs> card as well, which is nice. I think that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked with with an excellent uh, an excellent coach uh, when I decided that I wanted to start doing audiobook narration. I'd obviously got a lot of transferable skills from doing voiceover in general. Yeah. Uh, but I worked with this excellent nonfiction narration coach. Again, somebody who's who's coaching in a niche called Sean Pratt. And um, Sean's recorded over a thousand books. He really knows what he's doing. And one of the things that I took away from his coaching was the permission to make it a performance. A lot of people, particularly with, with fiction, they know it's a performance and they know they've got to play all the voices and the characters and all the rest of it. But with nonfiction, there's a tendency for people to, to make it very, very staid and it just That's goes a really along good point. and it's just reading it. And Sean was like, no, it still has to be a performance. This still has to be Mike Cooper's take on, on, on this or, or whatever the story. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely so you right. have permission to perform. And it was like... Phew, light bulb went off for me and it really unlocked it for that me. is a really good point and, and i've i've been recently so i write non-fiction of course but i also through covid 
Um, this is linked, by the way, not just me just decided to talk. It is linked. <laughs> um, I realized I wanted to start writing novels as well. I just find that really interesting. I like the kind of symbology you can do, the different work. Anyway, and then after that, this, this is the link. I've been working on narrative nonfiction, kind of the permission to take a, at the moment I'm working on a fighter's kind of story, right? Mm. In itself, it's kind of whatever, wins and losses. But if I can like kind a first of... first-person narrative? If I can, if, if what, sorry? First-person narrative? Yes, like you're, yes, you're exactly. exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm still playing with that, but, but it's so I'm really, just as you say, giving the permission to bring that story. I've read a million kind of, you know, biographies and autobiographies, which are like, you get past chapter two and you think, I just, I can't read it anymore. I'm going to go on Sherdog, look at the stats and that'll be fine. But actually when you kind of fictionalize it, it gives it, as you say, that permission to kind of dramatize mm. it because ultimately I think that's what gets the message across. And certainly from a listener's point of view, that's what the, you know, that's what the reader and the listener wants. Oh, that's good. That's interesting to do. So you, you enjoy that then. Did that kind of bring your audio work alive? Yeah, very much because I was suddenly, I felt free to inject my personality into it. And I think a lot of people feel that maybe injecting their personality into it is at odds with the text because like, if, if, if you write the book, then it's, it's Matt Jardine's words and it's Matt Jardine's ethos and Matt's humor and all of that. So what happens when Mike comes along and starts to put his flourishes on it? Is it still Matt? Well, maybe it's not quite so much Matt's as it might be, but then as long as it's sympathetic and as long as I'm following the line of your humour, it work, I, I would still contend that it works better with me putting my flourishes on it than if somebody comes along and reads it like a robot. I completely agree. Very way, yeah. And I would say that I love that for that because what I've learned, when I, when I got into publishing as opposed to writing on your own, you realise, and you, you know this, you've been behind the scenes. I, I love behind the scenes stuff, right? Because you realise then the person at the front is not the magic. That is, is sorry, is one tiny part of the magic george who's in the book george asprey plays scar mm. and uh, lion king right when he took us behind the scenes i love that more than the actual watching because you go wow this is there's a hundred people making this production that you thought was just you know five or six characters so like mm. for example when when uh british Millennium got published and then you know you got your agent you got the publishers and you realize this isn't my i i, I happen to be the one who sit down and wrote that all good, happy day. But it has a life of its own. Yeah, but then it has, and, and actually ha being happy to allow that to happen, then it becomes, it's not my book, it's our book. And now it's moved into Audible. I completely agree. Like Renata had said, had offered my, <laughs> obviously I'm not going to get that, but offered me to Blackstone. And she, she said, no, we've got in-house people. And then when I saw your stuff, I was like, no, I'd much prefer a pro. And now hearing Mike's stuff might do it because now that the, it takes on a life of its own, it's not, you know, it's Mike's audiobook. I wrote the initial words. And I, I think that's much better for that person. It's an interesting thing because uh, there's always that question of, well, should, should the author narrate their own book? And for some authors, the answer is a definite yes. If you, if you are an established quantity and people are used to seeing and hearing you on radio, TV, wherever else, and you write a book it's going to make much more sense for you to do it. But there are lots of reasons why an author wouldn't either want to narrate their book or shouldn't narrate their own book. For a start, just because you're a great author doesn't mean you're a great narrator. No. And nobody's going to realise how difficult narration you, is. Yeah. Nobody's going to want to listen to you for six or eight hours unless you can lift the words off a page for a start. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, 
you would not be the first person to go into a studio to record an audio book and suddenly realize the enormity of what you've taken on. Yeah. Things like the stamina, can your voice handle recording for maybe six hours a day? Because yeah. if you go into a studio to do it, you're going to do it in a block. I have the luxury of breaking my books up and maybe doing an hour or two of work on them a day. But if somebody takes you into a studio to record your book, they're going to expect you to be there for two, three days, four yeah. days straight. Yeah, because you, you know you're paying for the studio times times money and all that. That may not work for you if you're not used to you know, studio etiquette, how a voiceover session works, pacing yourself. Uh, you probably find you get to the end of the first day and your voice is just knackered and you're yeah, yeah, yeah. not sure where you can go. So yeah, there's there's good reasons for an author to do their own book, but I would say in a lot of cases it makes more sense to to let somebody else do it. And yeah. in fact. Most of those authors, when they come back afterwards, once again, once they've once they've let their ego drop out of it, they'll turn around and say, you know what, I really wanted to do it myself, but now having heard you do it or them do it, absolutely, I realise it would not have been the right thing, and I'm so glad I did. I don't think people realise until they try those little things, and I and I do think everyone should try everything. I don't, you know, but you don't realise until you've done the years of anything like writing. Like you've got a lot of people write, and they, everyone wants to write something, right? But then you say to them, it takes quite a long time to write anything half decent. And then mm. you've still got to go through your editors, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. So I think everyone can do it, but I, I think you also have to be honest. And I think with things like voiceovers or being in front of camera, it's a different beast. People do not realize I've been around film bit for quite a little bit, just the back scenes. And you realize when you try it and how bad you are at it, how hard it is. Now, of course you can get better, but that takes then, are you prepared to put in the 10, 12, 30, 40, 15, 20 years? But um, no, it's, it's a skill I, I greatly, greatly admire. Um, I hope you enjoy the book when you hear it. I can't wait. I, I actually can't. <laughs> I don't I haven't seen when it's out because it's still um, on the website. It's still kind of black and white. So they're obviously I believe it's the, 20, the 26th of April. So uh, Ooh, we're Oh, I can't wait. Audio, audio books often come out on a Tuesday for some reason. So you may find that the 26th is a Tuesday. Uh, if it is, that would be right. <laughs> Look at you. You even know Uno of those little bits. Now, listen, I don't I know, know why I've they taken... come out on a Tuesday, but I've noticed that a lot of titles are published on a Tuesday. I, I'm really I'm really excited it's with you. And, and even more so now, just because of meeting you, you are kind of the epitome of a, a Buddhist millionaire. Just, you know, doing what you love making it pay and, and, you know, following your intuition. So listen, before I let you go, because um, you've been very generous with your time, uh, bearing in mind that most people listening uh, wanting to, would love to do what you're doing, not necessarily narration as such, but kind of, you know, waking up, loving what you do, taking life on and, and, you know, going to bed going, I love my work and I've had a great work day and I'm going to get up and do something tomorrow. So this is impossible, but do the best you can. One hmm bit of wisdom one gem that they kind of when they leave they go oh yeah mike cooper he said this one bit of advice to get them from where they are which might not be enjoying what they're doing to where they could be give us give us some of your magic oh what would i say well i guess what i would say is that the voice of your intuition is always there it's whether or not you're being quiet enough to hear it but if you wait long enough and you're quiet enough, you will hear it. Whether you choose to act on it is another thing. Uh, Mark always uh, will tell you that when he starts working with his coaching clients and he says, well, what do you want? Most people haven't, and I think you, you say this in the book as well, most people haven't even given themselves the permission to think about the idea that they might want something. Want something, yeah. Um, 
So giving yourself permission to do it. But then also the other thing that you will find, and this is a really important one, is that when you do hear the voice of your intuition, very soon after you hear the voice of your intuition, your ego will kick in again within seconds, maybe not even that long, and start giving you the list of all the reasons why it can't happen or it's impractical. Yeah. It's, you, you're suffering from premature practicality. It's practicality. I like that. You're still <laughs> at the dreaming stage. Allow yourself to dream for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the problems will become clear if there are any problems as, as you start moving towards that end result and taking the obvious actions. But to allow yourself to get stymied by premature practicality within seconds of coming up with the, the dream, you know, that's the one to watch for, I would say. Yeah, Mike, you've said that a few times. Of you guys listening, I think the thing that there are many things that stick out, but you've said a few times about give yourself permission, allow yourself to, to lead a life that you like. I like that because that's that's true, isn't it? Just giving yourself the permission. And, and, you know, and we're not always surrounded by people who encourage that. I mean, certainly us coming from generations where our parents might have been frightened by that. It's not not giving permission, but fearful. But it sounds you know, like a cultural thing. Cultural, yeah, 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 that's a good point. And I, I find um, it's a, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but, you know, cliches are often cliches for a reason because mm. they, they're truisms as well a lot of the time. But I felt, um, I love the UK. I mean, I spent the first 43 years of my life in the UK and I'm very, very fond of the UK. But cliche though it might be, I do feel freer living here and I feel like I'm more in the driving seat of my life here really? than, you do was, in, in the than I was in London. Yeah. I was successful in London. I had a great life in London, but I feel much more like I'm the master of my own destiny, if you yeah. like, yeah. now yeah. than I did 10 years ago. And part of that is where I live and part of it is having the, the mindset and the attitude that says, well, if I don't like the way my life looks, then no one else is going to change it for me. It's up to me to do that. And I, I love that that was what came through the book, this idea that you get to, do you want to be a passenger in your own life or do you, do you want to be the pilot or the co-pilot? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, I tell you, I could speak to you forever. You guys who are listening, hope you enjoyed that. I know you will have done. Um, as I say to you all the time, please take a moment to share this with someone you know will benefit. It's not about building my platform. I don't need you to share it for me, but you know there's someone struggling who's not doing what they want with their lives. So just share this. Yep. Mike has a massive experience on just, you know, living the life that he loves, the work life that he loves and making it a success. So as ever, if you've got people in your lives that you love, take the time and remember to tell them you love them. And I will see you on the next episode of the Buddhist Millionaire Podcast. Lots of love. Bye. Thank you.